Today we're going to continue in our study on how to be rich. If you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We're going to read a few verses about riches and money. Luke chapter 16 verse 9, And I say to you, make for yourself friends by unrighteous mammon, when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in what is much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So I just want to notice three things out of this passage. The first is that unrighteous mammon, or money, we'll just call it money, finances, assets, possessions, is something different than true riches. Verse 11, if you've not been faithful in money, who would commit to your trust true riches? So it's very interesting if we want to be rich, we have to understand uh, first that true riches is not money. And we also understand that how we handle money is actually a pathway to true riches. You see here, he says, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful in much. If we can't be faithful with just a little bit of earthly money, then apparently we can't be faithful with what is true riches. Very interesting orient, uh, thought. Second thing is that money is uh, either something that uh, we use or something we serve. If we're not using money as a means to true riches, which is not money, then we will be serving it. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the second point is money must be tamed. Uh, And the third point... Uh, is that people are more important than money. Verse 9, Make for yourself friends with unrighteous mammon, that they may receive you into an eternal home. Eternal home uh, is their place in heaven, and actually, from this parable, you're actually using the money to benefit others so that they'll benefit you a long, long time in the future. So, this idea that being rich, money is a means to riches, but it's not riches itself. Money is, and it doesn't matter how much money you have, it's how you handle the money that determines whether you're rich. That's a different way of thinking. These principles here, though, um, actually are found in surveys, as you would expect. If someone does good scientific research, it always lines up with the scripture because the scripture is true and good research always finds things that are factual. There's a study that was done by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and uh, there's an article here that uh, uh, talks about it. It starts off with with the question, would $25 million make you happy? Now, this uh, study they did was of people who only had net worth exceeding $25 million. I think we can all agree $25 million is a lot of money. The answer to would $25 million make you happy is yes, unless you already have $25 million. And then it doesn't make you happy. Uh, So... The survey actually finds out that uh, money brings a lot of problems. 
The truly wealthy, it says, know that appetites for material indulgence are rarely sated. No yacht is so super, no wine so expensive that it can soothe the soul or guarantee one's children won't grow up to be creeps. (laughs) So here's ten fears of the super rich. Fear number one, they don't have enough money. A respondent reported he wouldn't feel financially secure until he had $1 billion in the bank. Number two, they can't complain. Someone's complaining about not being able to complain. He said, I, I can't, I've lost the right to complain about anything for f- fear of sounding ungrateful. <laughs> I like that, complaining about being, not being able to complain. Uh, the number thir- three is trust fund babies. They're concerned their kids are going to grow up and be brats. Number four, their friendships are all altered. They feel like people like them just for their money, not for them, not for the real relationship. Number five, they don't like holidays anymore. And why? Feel like milk cows. Everybody just wants to see how much do I get this year. And it's never enough. Uh, Anxiety, fear of loss. They have a lot of money. The more you have, the more you can lose. So they spend a lot of angst being afraid they're going to lose what they have. Um, The perception of others. One person said if she got a job, she would have trouble being seen as a colleague and not a donor don't fit in anymore uh, another child one this child one is, is a large one you know how do I raise my kids uh, without in a way that uh, where they're happy and constructive that's a that's a difficult thing uh, and this and this one is entitlement how do I raise my children without entitlement money could mess them up one person said how do we get our kids to learn to mow the grass when we have a full-time gardener uh, number nine is inheritance. Um, and this this uh, respondent says, I've grown up with a father who never wanted to give up control of the business, but kept taunting me with the opportunity to step into his shoes. It's been difficult to feel financially independent when my spouse's parents hold tight control over the children's inheritance. And number ten is poor people. And I'm not sure exactly what this is but I think I think what they're saying is they 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 fear being resented you know like the occupy wall wall street one percent sort of thing and he says uh this person says no one has the excuse of lack of money for not being at peace and living in integrity so kind of resentment that somehow you have something that I uh deserve now I have experienced that myself. Uh, I had at one point uh, a guy in New York City came up to me and said, do you have any, I'm hungry, do you have any energy bags in your pack? I said, yeah, I think I do. Any energy bars, sorry, in your backpack. Yeah, I think I do. So I'm rummaging through. He says, hey, I tell you what, just to save you trouble, how about if I trade the energy bar that you're going to give me for five bucks? So now he's, he's got something, he's trading up. And he starts negotiating with me, and I, I thought it was kind of funny, you know, because you you already don't have something, and now you're trying to trade what you don't have that's from me for something better. And the guy got really frustrated with me. He, he got angry because I was withholding from him that which he had already possessed. And, you know... Um, you don't have to have an immense amount. I, all I had was some energy bars in my bag. bag okay, that's all it took to to uh, engage with the, with this particular attitude. So even even uh, secular research would tell us that money itself uh, doesn't doesn't really buy happiness, and it is in fact a means to an end of some sort. Uh, It it is interesting, there's another article I found in Forbes magazine by someone named Elizabeth Dunn, and she did a study, and she found that that money actually can bring happiness if you learn how to use it. 
so which is interesting. And she found five things that you can do with money that actually makes it uh, bring happiness. Uh, these are really interesting. Uh, number one is buy experiences instead of buying stuff. Uh, number two is, she called it make, it, make it a treat, which is don't indulge yourself all the time, fast uh, material benefits, and then just treat yourself occasionally. Uh, number, thir- number three, buy time instead of stuff. Use your money to buy time. Number four is pay now, consume later. Buy time. I think what they mean by that is um, uh, like more time off or uh, yeah, use, use your money to give yourself uh, opportunities to go do things other than work or whatever. Uh, number five is invest in other people. So these are the five things. And the interesting thing about that, by experiences, generally speaking, if you're going to do an experience, what, what's going to be included? People. People. You're usually going to experience something with someone. Uh, and fasting is a, like a, make it a treat. You're actually denying yourself. You're actually using the money as an instrument to, to deny something. I can have this, but I'm going to deny myself. Uh, the th- number three, buying time. What are you typically going to do with time? Share it with somebody. Pay now, consume later is again once you're, the money's actually there as a tool to, for self denial. This is interesting, isn't it? It's the exact opposite of what most people think of in terms of if I had a lot of money, I would shower myself with all this stuff, which is exactly what makes people miserable. And number five is more direct invest in other people. Well, that really fits what we're talking about today because, go back to Luke chapter 16, no servant can serve two, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other, he'll also be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We've said that in verse 11, if you've not been faithful and unrighteous mammon who will trust to commit to your trust true riches true riches is something different than money money's a means to learn how to have true riches and money is something that either works for you or you work for it and then look at verse 14 now the pharisees who were lovers of money also heard these things and they derided him So Jesus, in large part here, is talking to the Pharisees about a problem that they have. Now the Pharisees were the heroes of the the Jewish culture. They were looked up to. They were immensely biblically literate. They understood the law. Their official mantra was to be righteous. And they had a fundamental problem. And the problem was that they were not understanding what the Bible says, they were using it for uh, a, the wrong purpose. Verse 15, he said to them, You, Pharisees, are those who justify yourselves before men. They had the wrong heart about money. Well, this, not, this cool little passage we've talked about here that shows us that money has to be tamed... It's a path to something. It's not an end to itself. And choosing people over money is is uh, is what we should what we should focus on. Is actually buried in a in a passage that includes five parables. And I want to show you that today. I want to show you these five parables are all about money and how to deal with money and what true riches are. So let's go back to the start of this. I actually got onto this because of the. A cool series that Mike did looking at different perspectives on the prodigal story. And I started looking at, well, that's cool to do different perspectives. So I'm going to give you another perspective, which is looking at it from the standpoint of money, which is a major theme in five different parables. Go back to chapter 15, verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, complained. 
And they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them. Now, this word, uh, receives, is an interesting word. It's a Greek word, prosdekamai. And it means to eagerly wait for. Let's go back to Luke chapter 2. And let me just uh, show you something in Luke chapter 2. In verse 25, we see this word. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. What What was Simeon waiting for? The, yeah, the Messiah. How, how was he looking for the Messiah? What does it mean he's waiting for the Messiah? He was really eagerly looking forward to it, right? It's something he spent his time focusing on because he was so eager for it to come. Well, that's the same word here, prosdecami, waiting. He was eager for it to come. So if we go back to Luke chapter 15, what we see here is these Pharisees were complaining because Jesus actually liked these people. They were sinners. They were, um, and he was, sorry, they were sinners and he was eating, oh, tax collectors, yeah, so they were traitors, tax collectors and sinners, and he was actually eating with them, which means he was having fellowship with them, and he liked being with them. He was receiving them warmly and, and, and with great welcome. So Jesus answers their complaint, with five parables. The first parable, he says, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one, won't leave the ninety-nine, go out into the wilderness, find the one that's lost when he's found it, puts it on his shoulders, he's happy. He calls together his friends and neighbors, says, Rejoice with me, I found my sheep which was lost. So how many sheep does he have? hundred. How many does he lose? One. What percent of his assets is at risk? 1%, okay? Now, if you have 1% of your assets that, that you lose, does it bother you? 1% is not very much. I mean, it's not very much in terms of percent. Do you still pick up dimes off the ground? That's way less than 1%. I know some people don't pick up pennies anymore. I always pick up pennies. Just out of principle. Yeah, no, I just put them in a jar at home, but uh, but it's just out of principle. That's, uh... Yeah, because even if even though it's only 1% of our assets, we still care about these. And in verse 7 he says, I say to you likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons. So what's the point? You care about your 1% of your assets. Is he complaining that you care about 1% of your assets? No, of course not. But what he says is, I care about these sinners just like you care about your sheep. I think of people just like you think about money. You lovers of money. Now, if you're a shepherd, you're probably a male. So then the question is, well, does this just apply to males? Well, no, it doesn't. Verse 8, what woman having silver coins... She loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully till she finds it. She finds it. Same thing. What did the guy do when he found his sheep? Called his friends. Yeah, he called his friends and, and, he, and, he, and, he, and neighbors and says, rejoice with me. Well, what she does when she finds the coin is she calls her friends and says, rejoice with me. Could be a text could it be a text or a call? Either one, yes. Facebook. Likewise, I say to you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now this time, it's 10% of her, of her assets, of her savings. Okay, which is more significant. But you get the same behavior, which is I've lost something. It's valuable to me. And I want to find it. And it's not just her. It's her friends. They're glad for her too. Because losing assets is something we don't like to do. And Jesus has the same thing. I care about these, pen, these people as much as you care about your money, Pharisees. 
And then he goes to a third story, and it's the parable of the prodigal son. Father, give me the portion of goods that fall to me. So first it's, it's uh, assets uh, of the sheep, then assets in the house. And now we're going to go to enterprise. Okay, God cares about enterprises too, because in this day and age, companies were the family business. And I'm told that if you were in a family, and that family business was um, prospering, in other words, it had more than just one person and, and had, a, had something going on, which in Israel is typical because it's private property and that property was deeded to the family in perpetuity. Um, if you're the oldest son, you got the double blessing, which means you got to be the CEO of the family when you got into your 50s or so. You were training to become the CEO of the family all this time. And the whole family is working together to create a family benefit, a family enterprise. So if the younger son comes and says, sell some of what you have, which remember you're in a situation where you can sell, but always with redemptions, properties considered sacred. You're doing this for the whole family. And this guy comes and says, I want my part split off. That just doesn't happen. You're not going to do that. So Jesus is making a, a really a hyperbole here of something I, I don't think would ever they would ever see. I want you to partition the family business so I can take mine off and do what I want to do. It's a very wicked thing in the culture. But he says, um, so he does, he does it. And he goes and wastes his possessions with prodigal living, ends up in the pigsty, and then comes home. And, of course, then the older brother, the one who would have been the CEO, and what has happened when they partition the the assets, what has happened to the older brother? His company size has been shrunk, right, of what he's going to... And he's actually endangered the family with this behavior. And so he comes home, and 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 uh, this father welcomes him gladly. And he says to the older son in verse 31... Son, you're always with me, and all I have is yours. All I have is yours. The younger son was restored his fellowship, but he was not restored his ownership. He was not restored his inheritance. He was was restored the fellowship with the father. Son, you're always with me. All I have is yours. It's right that we are merry and glad for your brother was dead and is alive again. And again, I think what God's showing here is I care more about the principles in the business, the owner of the business, than I do the business itself. He was dead and is alive again. It was lost and is found. Go back to chapter 15, verse 6. Rejoice with me. I have found my sheep which was lost. Look at the parable of the coins in verse 9. She found it. She calls her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me. I found that which I lost. Our son was lost and is found. And he parallels it in the prodigal uh, story with, He was dead and is made alive. Now, of course, these are the same words that he uses in Romans 6 when he says, We have been... Buried in death with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life on a daily basis. So this this is a central theme of the Bible. Lost, found, dead, alive. And again he's saying, I care about the people more than I do the money. The money is just a means to an end. And the means is teaching how to interact with people. He then goes and uh, turns to the disciples. So he's been talking to these lovers of money, these Pharisees, to make the point, people matter more than money. People matter more than possessions. People matter more than the enterprise. And even though there's consequences associated with money, the fellowship of the relationship is actually more important with to me. So I think in the terms of the Pharisees, the Pharisees had Israel. They had the scriptures. They had immense blessings. And he could say to them, all I have is yours if you'll take it. 
But what did the oldest son benefit from? He, he owned everything his father had. How much did he benefit from it? None. Because his complaint was what? You never gave me a fatted calf. We wonder if he ever asked for one. More than likely, he could have had a fatted calf any time he wanted to. So I think he's telling the Pharisees here, you love money so much that you're, you're completely missing the inheritance you have and you're spending your time complaining about these sinners who I also love and you're missing out completely on what you could be having. Then he turns to the disciples who've been listening to all this to make a point to them. And he does the parable of the unrighteous steward. Which I've gone on here numerous, numerous times. But it's so out of our paradigm, it's always worth going over again. And he says, there's a certain rich man, chapter 16, verse 1, who had a steward. Accusation brought to him. The man was wasting his goods. So he says, calls him and says, your stewardship's over. If I find out this is true, the steward knows it's true. So he says within him, what shall I do? My master is taking the stewardship from me. I know I'm going to get caught in this audit. I cannot dig. Too weak. I'm ashamed to beg. I've resolved what to do. So that when I'm put out of the stewardship, they will receive me into their houses. This is the key phrase in the parable. They will receive me into their houses. He's concerned about having a livelihood because he's going to get fired from his job. Once he's been fired from the job for being a thief, he's not going to get another steward job. At least in that culture. In our culture, it seems to be that not, not that unusual. Uh, so he says, I'm going to do something that is going to make people invite me into their houses. So here's what he does. He calls his, all of his master's debtors. And he says, the first, how much do you owe my master? A hundred measures of oil. Take down your bill and write 50. Says to another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. He says, take down your bill and write 80. So the master found out about this and he commended the unjust steward who he's going to fire because of his shrewdness. Because that was really shrewd. It was a shrewd thing to take my money and ingratiate yourself so that the people who you've benefited are going to invite you into their homes. Middle Eastern culture, if you do something for someone, they're indebted to pay you back. And he has done something amazing for people and he's fully expecting he's going to be cared for for the rest of his life as a result. And the, and the master says, well, that scoundrel, that was pretty sharp. He is a shrewd cat. And that's the end of the parable. And then Jesus turns to these disciples who just heard the Pharisees complain about the sinners. And he heard, well, 1% of your assets you lose, you're going to care about them. But I care about the people more. And 10% of your assets you lose them, you're going to care about them. But I care about the people more. And your enterprise, you have it divided and threatened. You're going to care about that. I care about the people more. And then he turns to the, to the uh, disciples and he says, um, I'm going to teach you something about how to be shrewd. Because this guy was commended for being shrewd. He's a crook, but he's a shrewd one. So how do you be shrewd? So the master, verse 8, commended the unjust steward because he had dwelt shrewdly. Then Jesus has a comment, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generations than the sons of light. Now you can take a lesson from the world, these, these sordid worldly people about shrewdness. Let's, let's learn something from them. So I say to you, Jesus says to the disciples, Make friends for yourselves with money, that when you fail your stewardship, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He's just got through made the point that I care for these sinners more than you care for 1% of your assets. I care for these sinners more than, if you, than you care for 10% of your assets. I care for these sinners more and the, and the relationship with the people more than losing a big percent of your enterprise and then he tells the disciples, I want you to pilfer my money. Because who owns all the money in the world? 
God. God's clearly the, the master in this parable. Who are the stewards? Anyone he's given it to. And he says, the sons of this generation understand reciprocity. They understand, you grease my palm, I'll grease yours. They understand, you give me a campaign donation, you get the bill that gives you a monopoly. They understand, you give me a campaign donation, I'll give you a casino license. Okay? They understand, you take me out to an expensive hunting trip, and I'll give you the ticket for the job. They understand that if you give, you expect to receive. They understand that. They understand reciprocity. They understand if I give you a little um, uh, piece of uh, cheese at Sam's, you may buy the cheese. Right? Everybody understands this in this generation. But you guys don't. You don't get it. And if you'll use my money to pilfer it to benefit other people... It'll actually pay big, but not now. Well, why doesn't it pay big now? Well, let's just skip ahead a little. And after we get to this through through the money passages, the very next uh, parable that Jesus tells in chapter 17 is about ten lepers. Ten lepers, and he cleanses the lepers... And in verse 14, he says to them, Go show yourselves to the priest. And they went and they were cleansed. They went and verified that they have been healed. And one of them, when he saw he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And this guy was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, Weren't there ten that were cleansed? Where are the nine? And why was no one found to return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to the foreigner, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. I have a good friend who does an immense amount of ministry stuff. And he told me one time, I found this is about right. About one in ten people that you do something for is grateful. The other nine are entitled. The only thing they have to say to you is, why didn't I get more? What are you going to do for me now? If you do something for somebody, it's unlikely that they'll invite you into your home now. Now, if they're in the world, they might, because this cycle of give, get, give, get, give, get goes until somebody kills the other one, or somebody goes to jail. Or you lose your ability to do something for somebody, in which case you're out of the cycle now. But when you give without requiring anything in return, most of the time you just get dumped on. But what Jesus is telling us here is we need to see beyond just this generation. Because we want to be shrewd. And when our stewardship's over, we want to see benefit from the stewardship. Because money is a means to an end, and people matter more than money. And then Jesus says, at the end of the, of the stewardship, uh, the unrighteous steward parable, then he says, I say to you, make for yourself friends by unrighteous mammon, verse 9, that when you fail they may receive you into the everlasting home. If you're faithful to me, the master, and what is least, which is all money, all money's not much to God, I mean, he can print. If our government prints money, it dilutes the value of it. But God can make money all He wants to. It doesn't mean anything to Him. It's just, it's just a means of teaching. It's a means to an end. Teaching. If you're faithful in a little, you're going to be faithful in a lot. And we know in the parable of the talents that the guys who were faithful in a little got cities to rule over. What Jesus is looking for is people that can understand how to manage his stuff. Uh, I, I was talking to a business professor at a Christian college uh, lately, uh, recently in an email exchange, and she said something really cool. She said, I tell my students, we will not need preachers or missionaries in heaven, but we need lots of business people. I like that a lot. I just said, it's the new earth, though. It's the new earth. Yeah, because there's going to be a lot of enterprise in the new earth. 
and a lot of stewardship that needs to happen. And God's looking for who are my stewards going to be? And he's going to find out from who's faithful with a little. Verse 11, therefore, if you've not been faithful in just plain old unrighteous money, money's money, if you can't be faithful with just stinky little money, who's going to commit you true riches? He doesn't say directly what the true riches are, but the inference to me seems to be to care for his people. To care for people. And if you've not been faithful in what's another man's, he'll give you what's your own. No servant can serve two masters. He'll hate the one and love the other, else he'll be loyal to one to despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Now the Pharisees have heard these parables, these four parables now. And they heard all these things and they derided him. Because they're lovers of money. They, they understand what he's saying. He's saying, I care about people more than money. I care about people more than money. I care about people more than money. Use money to serve people who can't pay you back now because they'll pay you back later. And they said, you're nuts. You don't know what you're talking about. And he turns to the Pharisees now and he said, you are those who justify yourselves before men. Why is it most people want a lot of money? What is it most people want to do with the money? Show off, mainly, isn't it? Isn't it to show off? You want to build a 100,000 square foot house? You know, have you, have you been to giant houses? I, I've known a few people that have giant... I mean, compared to people in uh, the rest of the world, all of us have giant houses, right? All of us do. Uh, but I've been to houses I can... You know, a giant house is one that's twice as big as mine, right? Isn't that the way that works? So I've been... So I've been to people that have giant houses and that usually they spend most of their time in some little corner room someplace where they can all cozy up, right? Because most of it's just empty space. And uh, you don't even like to be there. But it shows well. You know, you can show it off great. Or the car. I mean, you, you can only drive one car at a time. So why do you need 50 and, and a car is going to get you from point A to point B. Why do you have to have a car that you need three car parking spaces for so you won't get scratched? You know, what, what, what is it that we really do? Well, we want to show off. We want to justify ourselves. See, look at me. I, I have made it. I've, I've, I've arrived. That's mo- what most of us want to do. Uh, and, and they justify themselves before men. But God knows your hearts, Jesus says. For what's highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Whoops. So he wants us to use money wisely. It's not that God's not saying here, get rid of money. Um, He's saying here, money's a means to an end. It's a means for me to find out if if you're willing to be faithful in a little thing. Well, if you use or if I use money to justify myself before men... That is an abomination to God. What's it doing when I justify myself before men with money? What am I doing? I'm substituting approval from God with approval from men that I control. And I'm actually putting myself in God's place. It's idolatry. That's what it is. Well, then he goes on. When he starts beating on the Pharisees, he usually just keeps pounding. Remember the Pharisees are the religious people. He doesn't talk to sinners like this. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God has been preached. You have heard the kingdom of God preached since John the Baptist showed on the scenes here, Pharisees. And everyone is pressing into it. This term pressing into it is is imposing upon it, even doing violence to it. And it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. And this is kind of a difficult passage, but here's what I think it's saying. The kingdom has been preached, but you're taking your own thoughts and views and cramming it into the kingdom and perverting it. And then he gives them an example how they did it. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who's divorced from her husband commits adultery. Well, why does he say that? I think it's because the Pharisees had invented this rule that if your 
wife displeased you in any way, like burned your meal or something, you could just say, you're divorced, you're divorced, you're divorced, and she's gone, and now you're free to marry again. What they had done is taken this principle from the Scripture of oneness and just done violence to it, busted it up. And why would they do that? So, so they could get a prettier wife, a, more, a, a wife that makes them better in the world, a wife that suits their pleasure more uh, better, because they are slaves of money and pleasure. They've done violence to the kingdom of God. They're not listening to what it's really saying. And Jesus is saying, you're not going to be able to change even one little cross T or dotted I of the law. It's going to stand. And then he tells the fifth sermon. And I think he particularly has the Pharisees in mind. This is a tough one. Because this is about a rich man who dies. Certain rich man clothed in purple and fine linen, linen fared sumptuously every day, and a beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, laid at his gate. How would you like to be the Pharisees hearing this for the first time? He's talking directly to you. Can you see why they ticked them off? Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came, licked his sores, so it was the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom was a common term of understanding for where you would go when you die. And the, the Pharisees believe in a resurrection. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades. Now Hades is a well understood concept from the Greeks and apparently is close enough to Sheol where they, the Jews just took it in and used it. It has two compartments. A compartment for the evil and a compartment for the rich and it's divided. Sorry? For the rich? A compartment for the evil and a compartment for the good. Did I say rich? Okay, sorry. All right. We're in big trouble. Yeah, it's good to know. Apartment for the evil, apartment for the good, divided between. And here you've got the the compartment, and he's in Hades in torment. And he lifts up his eyes, looks across the divide, and sees Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. So here's the picture of, uh, uh, of the evil and the good. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son. Now this son here is a very interesting word. It's the word technon. Technon is the word for child. When the innocents were slaughtered in Bethlehem, it quotes a verse and says, Rachel was mourning for her children. It's technon. So this is a term of endearment here. Child. So Abraham is acknowledging, you're you're my child. Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you're tormented. And besides all this, between us there's a great gulf fix, so those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor those who pass to us. And he said, Beg you therefore, Father, you'd send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes from the dead, they'll repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And of course, the one who's rising from the dead is the one telling the story to the people here who are the rich men that are treating the poor who they complained about. Remember the poor people? Why are you complaining? Or sorry, the sinners. And he's saying, you're your disinterest in these poor people who are spiritually impoverished and you're not giving them even the crumbs from your table, you're this rich man. And you're doing violence to the kingdom and you're not even listening to Moses yourself. Now, the disciples hear all this and he says to the disciples in 17, it's impossible that no offenses should come I read this same verse last week in Abraham Lincoln's uh, second inaugural address. But woe to him through whom they come. 
It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. See, again, it's the people that matters. How you treat people is how I treat people. That's what really matters. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Now, they just heard all this whole thing about the steward and shrewdness and uh, how they should treat others. And now they heard rich man and Lazarus. And now they're being told directly that they could have a millstone tied around their neck. And do you think they understood the point? Because the apostles say to the Lord in verse 5, Lord, increase our faith. And I imagine it was like, Lord, increase our faith. Because the way the Jews are hearing this story, this is all available to them. Now, we can reinterpret this in light of what we know today if we care to. But I'm just telling you, historically, this, purga- this is a purgatory type of picture here. Purgatory was the accepted way that afterlife happened until 1500s. you got 1500 years, and the Jews today still think of it this way. That there's this time when if evil on earth is purged. It's interesting that uh, the 99 Thesis for was mainly about sale of indulgences, which was a way to get out of purgatory. So they, they developed this whole elaborate kooky system where you could avoid being the rich man in this picture by your relatives paying money to the priests, to the church. And a lot of big cathedrals got built off of that scheme, which was a scam. And the reformers appropriately said, this is corrupt, it has to stop. It was so corrupt that one of the 99 thesis points is you should not teach people to give their money to free their relatives from uh, purgatory if it causes you to not have enough money to feed your children. There were actually people impoverishing themselves in order to do this. That's how strongly people believe this. And the it's interesting in, in modern uh, evangelical Christianity, we still have a version of this, the judgment seat of Christ, and we ha- have all these same words, fire and burning and wood, hay and stubble and gold, silver, precious stones. But somehow we make it where, oh, but it doesn't hurt and there's no pain and it just lasts for a second. And I'm just telling you, you, you work through it yourself, but there's no guarantee of that. And what he's talking about in this is repentance in this passage. Now, what the, what, the, what the apostles come up and say, increase our faith. And the Lord says, you don't need your faith increased. You only need enough faith as big as a mustard seed, which is a tiny little thing. What you need to do is exercise the faith you have. And then he tells one more parable to, make the, to drive the point home. And he says, the servants who do what they're told to do at the end of the day, should say, verse 10, so likewise, when you've done all those things you were commanded, you don't need more faith, you need a more obedience. And when you've done all those things you're commanded, say, we're unprofitable servants. Unprofitable. So we can't get away from money here, can we? We're unprofitable servants because we've only done our duty. We've only done our duty. So, The picture that emerges from all this is true happiness comes from obedience. And obedience goes beyond just what we're told. It goes to a complete and total commitment to do what God's asked us to do. That goes beyond just just mere uh, adherence. And that's where true happiness and true riches come. And the means to true riches is learning how to use whatever we have to bless others. It is a hard thing to do to bless people with money. Why? Most people are not grateful. And if you give them money, it makes their life worse, not better. So there's a requirement of shrewdness here to know how to use money in a way that blesses others. I'll tell you some ways that I have tried to use money to bless others. Maybe. I know I wrote them down. Maybe I didn't bring them. Here we go. 
Number one, create jobs. You know, there's nothing that teaches people about money better than a, a really good job where there's cause and effect and consequences. When people just get given money, it usually hurts them. Number two, experiences. Experiences can be small or big. Trips can be a trip, can be a meal, can be uh, an excursion. Partnerships. There's all kinds of ways to associate with people. Sports leagues, schools, classes, church activities, charitable activities, enterprises, mission trips, uh, specific enterprises that address some kind of evil and try to make something that's bad good. Uh, this can be government and inclu- could include that. Hospitality. Hospitality is a great way to share your stuff. Boy, if you open up your premises to other people, they'll, uh, they'll take advantage of it. Some are grateful. Some are not. Some are careful with your stuff. Some are not. Um, all of it is a way to train our hearts to care about other people. You know, materialism is that which defines happiness on acquiring something you don't already have. If we allow that to be our definition of happiness, we will never be happy. Because happiness then by definition is based on what I don't have. And it means I can't enjoy what I do have. And if we understand true riches and use our money to do things that bless other people, whether they look at it that way or not... And we're, when we're looking at how can, I, how can I navigate myself where I'm actually helping and, and, and blessing other people, then what we're actually doing is embracing Jesus' point here. That true riches comes from being faithful from the little thing that God has given us to bless other people. And when we bless other people, they may not view it that way. But it doesn't matter. What matters is what they're going to see in the eternal home. What matters is, are we being faithful to the commands that God has given us? What matters is, who are we serving? God or money? Because that's our two choices. Lord, thank you for this amazing set of parables. And God, uh, just like the disciples prayed, increase our faith. I'm inclined to do likewise. But I think what you want us to do is say, God, help me be a better servant. And not only do just what you tell me to do, but embrace these principles and go beyond that and do what you would do if if you were in our place. That we might have your heart completely, Lord, toward other people. Not to have them say thank you to us now necessarily, although they might, but to have them invest in them in such a way that we're bettering them and giving them the opportunity to know you and to learn the things that you have for us. God, I, um, we are unprofitable servants. We are um, not shrewd. But Lord, I just pray that you give us wisdom to make us profitable servants and make us shrewd. And each day we may grow. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, what's going on? Good. I got four out of the five of those things that you said.